0: Welcome to Wyoming, my 307. My name is Carla Mowell, and I'm the great-granddaughter of a Wyoming coal miner and the daughter of a Wyoming oil field worker. You could say that I have the Wyoming energy industry in my DNA, but I remember as a college student challenging my dad on the petroleum industry's negative effects on the environment. Well, he quickly shut that down, saying... It kept you in Cheerios and sent you to college, and I changed the subject pretty quick after that. I really wanted to learn more about coal in Wyoming, and boy did I ever. Kind of like the cryptocurrency episode, I knew I was in way over my head, but my guest did a great job of simplifying some really complex information while still helping us understand some nuances that I think are often overlooked. I feel so fortunate to have had the opportunity to have interviewed Dr. Holly Krutka. She is the Executive Director of the University of Wyoming School of Energy Resources. And Holly is a renowned expert on coal and other energy resources, and has even testified before Congress. Unfortunately, we had to use Zoom to record this interview, and it picked up on several rings and dings and office and computer sounds. So I'm so sorry about that. But let's hear from Holly. Welcome to Wyoming, my 307 podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm really happy to be here, Carla.
0: Tell us a little bit, Holly, about what you do at the University of Wyoming. So
1: I am Executive Director of the University of Wyoming School of Energy Resources. And under that umbrella includes a team where we have an undergraduate academic program where we train students to be energy professionals. The name of our degree is Energy Resource Management and Development. We have two concentrations, professional land management, otherwise known as Landman, and um, energy and environmental systems. And then we have a big outreach program, um, sharing the information and results from what we're doing across the state and holding conferences and webinars. And then the area that we're really known for is research. And so we have a really large research program. And that's all under our umbrella here at the School of Energy Resources.
0: Well, that's pretty exciting and very apropos of Wyoming and Wyoming's needs. And I know that you've testified before Congress before. So I feel really fortunate to be able to have you here today to explain some things about the coal industry in Wyoming. I mean, I feel like everyone talks about coal in Wyoming, but in a very surface way. Yeah. Um, dig a little deeper i mean we we constantly hear that coal is critical to the wyoming economy jobs and state revenue could you just start off painting us a picture of coal production in wyoming like where is it mined and where is it processed
1: right so we have a couple different locations where coal is mined in wyoming the big, big coal mines that you're probably typically hearing about are in Campbell County, Wyoming. We have the largest mines in the world in Wyoming, and Wyoming produces about 40% of all coal used in the US. Most of that leaves the state's borders. We do have several coal-fired power plants, but most of it is exported around the US and from these like really incredible mines in Campbell County. I, I think it's interesting to understand why um, We do focus on coal and by by the way, at the School of Energy Resources, we work on all energy forms and including coal. And um, one thing you should know and your listeners should know is that Wyoming is focused on coal because we have truly prolific resources here. Our coal seams are thicker than almost anywhere in the world so our mining costs are really low. In addition, our coal is much better than other types of coal, so it does have a lot of moisture, but it's very low in sulfur and low in ash, so it's just a really great product um, that we're able to produce here in Wyoming.
0: And there's nothing new about coal mining in Wyoming. I mean, that's part of Wyoming's growth. My great-grandfather was a coal miner in what is now a ghost town called Jibo, Wyoming, and I have a copy of his little notebook where he tracked how much coal he mined every day and also how much he owed to the company store. And I've actually been to Jibo. There's like some historical signage and you can walk around and it's hard to know what you're looking at, but I think it had surface mining. And I just imagine him with like a pickaxe and buckets or carts or something. What does coal mining look like today?
1: Great question. So, not to overuse the term, but this is today's coal mining is not your your grandfather's coal mining.
0: <laughs> exactly. That's what I figured. <laughs>
1: the scale is absolutely tremendous. So, the Powder River Basin um, is able is producing well over 200 million tons of year. It's very very efficient. There's a lot of technology involved. The reclamation is really exceptional so i'll touch on a couple things first of all making the mining efficient um, obviously very machine oriented there are not people with pickaxes mining coal in wyoming today it's it's all using large equipment and it's truly if you haven't seen it the scale is just really humbling we mine at a very large scale it's only also very technology driven there's a lot of science involved understanding where the resources how to mine in the most efficient way they even have technology that could monitor its drivers to ensure that if they if they were looking down for too long if their eyes were closed perhaps if someone was starting to fall asleep that they they would notify them that you know hey you're you're acting tired you need to stop and take a break just to ensure safety and i think safety is always a top priority and and that's another thing that Wyoming can be proud of is just how safely our coal is mined versus around the world that that certainly isn't always true. So, and I, I think the the other thing that I need to touch on is just the reclamation effort. So once the coal is mined out, the coal miners are responsible for returning the land um, back to um, a natural state that it, or a usable state, I should say. So oftentimes they like to say it's better than than what it started as. And so there's a um, you really to the trained eye, you can tell where the coal mining happened, but for for an untrained eye, it's very difficult um, because the reclamation work is so rigorous and very science based, and making sure that the the plant life is is um, sustainable and healthy before before reclamation is considered complete.
0: I actually had the chance to go to Gillette, but it was off season, so I didn't. Get to go on the coal mine tour, but that's definitely on my bucket list because I want to I want to see these giant operations up close because I think it's really interesting, the combination that you talked about of science and business and how that is all balanced with the reclamation. Absolutely. Well, we all know that coal is a source of energy. That's how most people think of coal. But I actually, in researching for this episode, I learned that it can be more than just energy with things like coal ash and other things. Could you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: So I talked a little bit about our research program here at the School of Energy Resources. The way we divide our um, research program up is into centers of excellence and we have a center called the Center for Carbon Capture and Conversion, and it's led by an engineer named Trina Pfeiffer, and that center is focused on the future of Wyoming coal, and one of their big initiatives is carbon engineering, for which we've received a great deal of state support, and our carbon engineering initiative is focused on creating non-energy products from coal, and so we've talked already about the scale of Wyoming coal mining. So when we look at what types of products we want to create from coal, we're looking at very large volumes. Otherwise, it's not going to make a dent in coal production in Wyoming. So there's a few universities working on this. In other states, they often work on high-value, low-volume products. We are focused on Low value, high volume, and that that is to help sustain these really large mines. And so, when we think about what can you make from coal that would be high volume and not for the energy sector, we have actually a wide array of products, and we bucket those into three areas. One is a soil amendment um, that can be used to help with water retention and um, fertilizer retention in soil. Another bucket is construction materials, and that, that's actually a huge area, so it has probably the most products in that bucket. So we create a coal char, and we can make things like bricks, mortar, let's see, just structural materials. We, we actually have a coal char brick house on campus. Dream. I'm so
0: glad you mentioned that because I love that and I want to see it. Is it open to
1: the public? Absolutely. Okay. So you yeah, have tell to let us, us know that. when you're. Yeah, you have to let us know when you're coming. But we're it, it is we we built it to show it off. So right now we have our first generation of coal char bricks on um, a house. It's closer actually in scale to a shed. <laughs> so two <laughs> mini houses um, next to each other. One is made with conventional clay bricks, and one is made from coal char derived bricks. Our dream is that someday that house can be made almost completely of Wyoming coal-derived materials, so that's why we're working on structural materials and roofing and flooring and insulation. Mm -hmm. That that house is here on campus in Laramie. We're testing the first generation. We're going to tear those down, test the second generation, and see if we can get bricks that are superior to what's already on the market. And there's a few different ways that we have to look at superiority. Number one, obviously, we have to compete on costs. No question about that. And one of the things that's going to help us compete on cost, again, is that just huge, massive scale of Wyoming coal mining. So the the coal itself is relatively affordable to use as a feedstock for different products. And the other areas we're looking at and we're testing is our coal char bricks are actually are more insulative than clay bricks. And they have lower VOCs. And VOCs is something you don't want in your house. It's... Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of like a gas that you don't want in your house. And we're measuring much lower than conventional clay bricks. And then um, other areas we're looking for is long, I'm sorry, I can't say that word long <laughs> duration life. Right. So, <laughs> we, so we're testing those and, you know, Wyoming's the best place to, to test that obviously with very harsh weather conditions. So we're working on that. And our dream is that someday we'll be making that whole house from Wyoming coal derived products, except for the windows, obviously, but we can make that from Wyoming, Toronto, so. So the third area in our carbon engineering effort is asphalt materials. And we're working with Western Research Institute here in Laramie on that. Western Research Institute is really well known for their asphalt work and they have um, derived, it's not from our coal char, it's from a product we get from what we call solvent extraction. And they've created asphalt material that can compete with conventional asphalt. Um, so we have this really diverse wide array of non-energy products that we're, we're testing and scaling up. And some, you know, this is still research and development. So some won't make it all the way to commercializ- commercialization, but we think some will. And we're really excited and we're working on some very new cutting edge things we're working on even include like aggregate. So when you pour roads, you have to use a lot of aggregate. That, Which is rocks, and so we think there might be opportunities for that as well. And some of these are really massive markets, so we're we're very excited about the program.
0: That's cool. Well, in our polarized political environment, coal and clean energy seem to be treated as competitors or even polar opposites. But how do you think of it?
1: Yeah, that's that's a question that's really near and dear to my heart. The way I actually came to be at the School of Energy Resources is they have a team here working on carbon capture use and storage. So one of our other research centers, the Center for Economic Geology Research, it's led by Dr. Fred McLaughlin under Scott Quillen and our Senior Research Director. I knew about that group, which is focused on capturing carbon emissions initially from coal-fired power plants, but now we're looking at all types of sources and storing those so they don't enter the atmosphere. And so I've never looked at coal and clean energy as two separate items. I think coal, natural gas, oil, those are going to remain in the energy mix. And so here at the School of Energy Resources, we take a pragmatic approach that we can reduce emissions and environmental impact from using those fuels. And we are working on that and we're working with industry. And we are also working on wind and hydrogen and nuclear and rare earths and critical minerals. You you need all these things to reduce emissions. We really feel like Wyoming is the right place to demonstrate clean energy technologies. And due to our oil and gas expertise in the state, it's a great place to research the idea of storing carbon emissions deep, deep underground. So Wyoming's very far ahead in that research and actually... We've been doing that in the state for decades through enhanced oil recovery. The idea with enhanced oil recovery is you take carbon dioxide and you use it to produce more oil from the same formation, but this carbon dioxide ultimately stays underground. We just have a tremendous amount of expertise in this state and that's why it was really attractive for me to come here and work on this. So I totally reject the notion that coal can't be clean, and it's an enemy of like wind and solar, we need all those things. The world is very energy hungry, and mm-hmm. we have to have it all. And globally, fossil fuels are still 80% of the energy mix, and that's pretty much still true everywhere. We we need them. And so if we're going to reduce emissions, we can't just ignore those and assume we'll replace them that this energy infrastructure has taken a tremendous amount of time to develop. So feel really strongly about this, that that it, it's all part of the solution.
0: Right. And you mentioned rare earth minerals, and that's another thing that we're hungry for because of all of our devices that we love so much and hate sometimes. But we've been hearing a lot about the need for rare earth minerals due to maybe like the war in Ukraine and problems with China. And I didn't realize that these minerals can actually be a byproduct of coal
1: extraction. Can you talk a
0: little bit more about that?
1: So we have two projects focused on that very thing. So coal and coal byproducts. So even um, coal that's already been consumed for power plants that has, you have leftover fly ash, there's also rare earths in there as well. So we call it coal and coal byproducts do have rare earths. Wyoming has conventional rare earths associated with ore, and there's a company, Rare Element Resources, working on developing a project, but in addition to that, we have what we like to call unconventional rare earths associated with our coal basins. So we have two projects, one focused on the Powder River Basin, which is the where the big mines are up in Gillette, and then we also have a project focused on the Greater Green River Wind River Basin, which um, extends down into Colorado, is on the western side of the state. And so we're looking at the concentrations of rare earths. It's rare earths and critical minerals. So it includes looking for things like lithium that we're going to need. The concentrations in coal and coal byproducts are much lower than you have in conventional ores. We believe that it's the rare earths and critical minerals are bound um, less tightly to coal, and so it might be easier to separate those and purify them. So that's what we're working on now, is trying to understand exactly how these important elements and minerals are, are tethered to the coal and what it would take to separate them so we can use them. So it's it's really an exciting area, and again, it's in rare earths, by the way, they're used like for wind turbine magnets. This is batteries, they're they're in all kinds of things, and like you said, cell phones and basically everything we touch in modern life. So It's not just rare earths and critical minerals though. We really need as a country to look at our energy security and opportunities across the state. I just wanna point out that like Wyoming has really low carbon footprint natural gas production, low carbon footprint oil production, same with our coal relative to other coals. So we really should be using these fuels versus importing them from abroad. Same with critical minerals and rare earths. We, we really have everything we need here in this country, and we have to look at our national security imp- um, implications of resourcing those from elsewhere. So we feel really strongly Wyoming has a big part to play in national security as well.
0: Is it just a matter of creating some additional infrastructure? Because if we have the actual materials in the ground, what's stopping us from going
1: for it? That's a great question. So. I think one of the top things stopping us is Wyoming energy and mineral producers have to compete with state-owned energy companies in other states. That's a problem for our, you know, for our system. So state-owned companies don't necessarily have to generate a profit if their work is strategic to the country. And there's a lot of countries where the environmental standards, we talked about reclamation, there's also A lot of work that has to be done around permitting and water protection things like that there's places around the world where some of these rare earths and critical minerals are being produced and they don't have to follow those same rules and it costs money to follow those rules and then the other thing i'd point out is labor standards we have rules about safety how much you have to pay people and other countries don't have that especially places like china and russia it's it's an it's not a level playing field and also the other thing I would add on is that it's very challenging to get permits to produce energy, to mine, even though we know we need these materials. And the idea, the reason it's so hard is because we're, we are trying to protect the environment and people, and, but it's, it's not something that our competitors have to do. So as a country, I think we have to figure out how do we, how do we ensure that we are protecting the environment, we are protecting people, And we're able to protect our national security as well and produce these these very important minerals and energy here, right here at home.
0: Yeah, so it's basically like we're looking at it and more of the long term and other folks have the ability of moving quickly to meet the short term need.
1: It's hard to see how um, outsourcing your energy production to unfriendly states would be ever good
0: it's yeah i guess when i say the long term i was thinking of the structures that are in place that stop things from moving quickly are based on like the long-term good of our actual land you know what i mean like these restrictions seem to be things that are good like do we want to pay people less or have them work in dangerous situations probably not That's a commitment that we've made as a country not to do, but we're missing out on some short-term being able to just meet this, as you said, growing and hungry need. Yeah, I think that's really well said. I know that we're going to need to wrap up, but I have some closing questions that I like to ask all my guests. And the first one is, what is something that people that are just driving through Wyoming, going to some of our wonderful national parks, for example, what is something they may not realize about our state or about our people?
1: I I don't think people realize how much is happening here in energy innovation. I think folks know that That are at least in the energy sector, Wyoming's a big energy producing state, but there's a tremendous amount of innovation here. There's a lot happening here at the University of Wyoming, and the School of Energy Resources is acts as a hub for that. Um, So I think, I think we don't fully get credit for that. I also think Wyoming isn't always the best about bragging about itself. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's probably our own fault. Um, Just kind of hunker down and do the work. So, um, I think people generally do get the sense that, like, folks from Wyoming are willing to roll up their sleeves and work hard. And so I think people do get, do hopefully get that about a, I think the amount of innovation probably would be the top thing I think people don't realize.
0: Okay. And what do you think is the hardest thing
1: about living in Wyoming? Um, The wind.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I live in one of those windy areas, too. (laughs) Well, I live in Laramie.
1: um, so. No, I um, I will say I moved here from St. Louis, and it's been such an incredible opportunity to be here in the state. It's hard for me to be critical. I, I just have a really positive experience, so it's hard for me to answer that. Yeah, the wind has actually been mentioned before. You're not the first. <laughs> I guess the other thing <laughs> that I think a lot about um, is how we have a lot of amazing talent here at the university. We see amazing grads, and they some of them, we, we do recruit quite a few UW grads and Wyoming natives to work here at the School of Energy Resources, and I think they're drawn to the kind of work we do. But I think retaining that talent pipeline is a challenge. I can tell you that I wanted to move to Wyoming for a while. I was really excited about the work happening here, and it took me a while to find a job. So. Um, that, that is one challenge. I'm just hopeful that some of this remote work might allow us to retain some of our folks and allow them the chance to move up ladders, career ladders if they want to, and still stay here in the state. So
0: Right. And last, what do you love most about Wyoming?
1: Uh, the people. And I have three kids, two twins that are five, and an 11-year-old son, and I love that we're outside all so much, even when it is windy and cold. Um, I love the people that are here. They're just really humble, hardworking individuals in my experience. And the crime is low compared to other places I've lived. So I just feel really safe. There's just a lot to love about Wyoming. And I'm still probably in the rose-colored glasses phase, except for (laughs) the wind. But um, I I just really like being here. And I'm, I'm just grateful that I was able to find a job to be able to raise my kids here. So.
0: Well, we feel very fortunate that you're here and I listened to some of your your testimony in Congress and I'm gonna post, you know, any links and stuff like that so folks can can learn a little more. And I just thank you so much for your time today, the work that you're doing here on behalf of the people of Wyoming.
1: Thank you so much. It's it's an honor to be here at the School of Energy Resources and it's an honor to speak with you. I'll I'll talk to you before Congress any day. So <laughs> <laughs>
0: Now let's go back in time and hear from some old-timers who grew up in Wyoming coal camps. First, Bernice Green Weibel. She grew up in various mining camps, including Elk Wyoming, near present-day Kemmerer. She was interviewed for a series called Growing Up in Wyoming, and this is housed in the oral history collection of the Wyoming State Archives. From what I can tell, the interview was done in the 80s or 90s, when Bernice was in her 60s or 70s.
2: This is Gladys Hill, and I'm interviewing Bernice Weibel. It is for the Growing Up in Wyoming project. Bernice, uh, I understand that you were born in Wyoming. Would you tell me something about that? Yes, I was born in a small mining town by the name of Elko, Wyoming. It has been a ghost town for many, many years. Describe your family life when you were growing up. I was the third child in the family, really the fourth. I had two older sisters and an older sister that died shortly after birth, and I have a younger brother. My father was... Born in Mississippi, and when he was a child, he moved to Texas and was raised in Texas. My mother was born in Chicago, and when she was 10, they moved to the Ozarks, and she finished raising her in the Ozarks. Her and dad met in Ely, Nevada, where my dad was working in a a mine area called Wakanda. And they were married in Ely. Later, my father moved to Wyoming to begin working in the coal mines. He had a good education, and he was one of the early uh, electrical engineers, and they had hired him to start putting safety devices and things in the mines. But still, all the time that he worked in the mines, they still used canaries and mules. They took the canaries down into the mines to test for black damp, and if the uh, canaries died, they made the miners leave the mines because they knew there, there was after to be an explosion or suffocation in the mines from them. And also the mules were sensitive to a black dam. If they refused to go down into a mine, the miners did not go into that cavity at that time. Mom was always busy just taking care of us kids. She didn't have as good education as my father. She got through the 8th grade, and of course in those days an 8th grade education was adequate, and that's all a woman was supposed to have. When my mother was growing up. In the coal mines, we lived in what they called tar paper shacks. And that's what they were. They were one or two or sometimes three rooms. And the only good house in the whole town would be the superintendent of the mine's house. And he would have usually a bigger house, a much bigger house, and made out of better material. But the tar paper shacks, they had wooden floors on them, no coverings on them layers and layers of tar paper on the outside, and of course I suppose tar paper was a good insulation at that time, but I can remember how awfully cold those houses were, and they only had a pot-bellied stove in one room to heat, and the cooking, sto- and the cooking stove in the kitchen to heat, and I can remember how bitter cold those houses were. Growing up in Elko and Sublet those places, my dad worked for old J.P. Quayley. They were known as the Qualley Mine Mines, and they were each numbered. They were numbered from one up to ten in that area. I remember the first remembrance that I had, the mines of my mother and father, was a large yellow hound dog that we had, and we called him Old Bob. And the reason I remember the dog so distinctly was that we lost my brother. And we hunted the coal camp over for him. And, of course, at that time, they was so lousy with rattlesnakes around there. And my mother was terrified that he might have been bitten by a rattler or got down into the pasture where the mine horses were kept. And she was frantic. And i that was the first remembrance I had is how frantic she was, how she was in tears, how the whole coal camp turned out to look for my brother, and they searched for hours for him. And then I was playing around in the house and upset, and I went and crawled under the bed, and there was my brother sound asleep on the dog, and he was perfectly all right. <laughs> so I ran and got Mother on the whole village, <laughs> and I was so relieved that he just crawled under the bed and went sleep with the dog. And Mother had forgotten that the dog always took care of us kids. He was so big that he could pick me up by my pants and drag me home. I never appreciated that, but he did it. And it was a close-knit unity, and I remember that we were socially separated from the other races because there was a lot of Chinese people in those whole camps. There were a lot of Irish. There were some Italians, some from Poland. And we had no black people at that time in the coal camps, but we each had our own little section of town that we lived in. During the fall of the year, the Italians would have trainloads of grapes shipped in to Sublet, Wyoming, and we were living in Sublet when my brother was a little boy. My father had been transferred to Sublet. I can remember then the fall of the year, these huge trainloads of grapes would be shipped in. And the Italians had these huge wooden vats. They were kind of a flat vat. They would load them full of grapes. And then the little white kids, the ones that were dark-skinned kids, they would let us get into the vat and stomp grapes with our feet because they could see whether our feet were dirty or not. But the darker-skinned kids, they made them wear white boots. And I can remember us getting in there, and it would take Mother days and days to get the stain off of our legs, but we sure had fun stomping grapes. We tromped around in those grapes until we were just covered with the juice and just as purple as we could be. (laughs) In the winter times, it was bitter cold in that part of Wyoming. And Bob, our old dog, Dad had made a little sled with sides on it and he would stick my brother and I in the in the little sled and we'd go for sleigh rides and that's how our transportation was and mother didn't have to carry us every place she went and the dog didn't mind dad built him a harness and we just went wherever we wanted another always made a lot of fudge and a lot of cakes and a lot of pies and she'd invite the neighbors in and we would play cards and and we would eat the fudge and the popcorn and whatever else mother had prepared for us and it was always a nice time but in a small schoolhouse there i can remember i was too small to go to school at that time but i can remember that they would have dances and Everybody was invited. The Chinese people very seldom come. They, they were a community within themselves. And the thing I remember most about them was the big vat they had for a bathing uh, tank. And the women would spend the whole day filling that tank full of hot water so the men could take their baths when they got home. And the men and women would all jump in the vat together, naked as the day they were born, and they would scrub each other, and, of course, that was an accepted custom in their country, and that's what they did. We had school dances. I can remember the school dances we had. Mother and Dad always went, and they would take us kids with them, and when we got tired, they would lay us on coats behind the old pot-bellied stove in the dance hall, and we would sleep there. I don't know. The dance would end probably 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and then they'd have to trudge home dragging a bunch of with kids.
0: After hearing her voice, I really wanted to learn more about Bernice Weibel, and I found her obituary online. There I learned that after growing up in various mining town camps, Bernice became a nurse and worked for many, many years in public health. She retired in 1983 and moved to a ranch south of Douglas. Now Bernice died in 2004 at age 82, but I feel like we're so lucky to have her recorded oral history, and I put a link to the full recording in the show notes, so please check it out. As Bernice mentioned, they really did use canaries in coal mines, and that brings us to today's Wyoming wildlife. No, we don't have bright yellow canaries, (laughs) but we actually have 13 different birds with predominantly yellow markings here. One is our state bird, the western meadowlark. We aren't the only ones who love the western meadowlark. Kansas, Montana, Nebraska, North Dakota, and Oregon also claim it as their state bird. Now, western meadowlarks are very difficult to distinguish from eastern meadowlarks, but Meriwether Lewis was the first to identify those subtle differences. Fortunately, we can differentiate them mostly by their range. Audubon gave them the scientific name of Sternella neglecta. Sternella because he felt they were like starlings, and Neglecta because he noticed that most explorers just overlooked them. Western meadowlarks are actually a member of the blackbird family. Males usually have two mates at a time, and the females do all the work, the incubating, brooding, and feeding of the young. Hmm. They nest on the ground, and the nests can be open or have a roof and an entrance tunnel several feet long. Even though they're very common, we usually hear them more easily than we see them. Most of the ones that we can spot are males singing their little hearts out on a fence post. And that's today's Wyoming wildlife, the western meadowlark. Now let's hear from Andy Ruskanen. He's the son of a Finnish coal miner, and he himself later worked in the mines. Again, this is an oral history from the Wyoming State Archives Collection.
3: May 3rd, 1984. Oral history of Mr. Andy Ruskin. You were born in him. Yes, right. Were your parents natives of Wyoming?
4: My parents were of Finnish origin. They both emigrated to, uh, to the United States in the early. Early 1900s, I think my dad came over in about 1910, uh-huh. and well, he didn't come directly to America. He came to, uh, he went to Canada and worked in the hard rock mines up there, and then he eventually went to Telluride, Colorado, and from there to uh, Han. Uh-huh. And he uh, went to work in the mines there, and he worked there uh, until about uh, well, April 4th, 1925, when he was killed by a premature death by explosion.
3: Well, he was there then at the time when they had that big uh, explosion. Well, he
4: was uh, he was there uh, after, that. after the two, that. The two the two large uh, big explosions that were there were two of them, 1903 and 1908. And as I remember correctly, there were 169 men lost in the 1903 explosion, and uh, I think the death toll in the second explosion, 1908, I believe, it was 69. Actually, in uh, 1908, there were two explosions. There were there was a uh, an explosion, uh, and then the rescue crew went in, and they uh, were underground when the second explosion occurred on the same day, only the, probably a oh. few, maybe twelve hours apart. Uh-huh. They left this, if I remember correctly, they left uh, twenty seven men underground. They had to leave them there because it was just it was no, no, no way they, could, way all, no, they couldn't recover their bodies. Uh-huh. My mother also emigrated to this country from Finland in, uh, I think it was about 1912 or something when she came to this country. She came to Russia, and I think she landed in Boston. And from Boston she came to, to Wyoming, and she lived in Cumberland, and Rock Springs, and Frontier, and Superior, and Rock Springs, and then she eventually moved to Hannah. Well, they were married in 191950 in Hannah um, my dad passed away in 25 and, and my mother passed away in 1954. I don't, I don't remember my dad too much because, mm-hmm. well, I was only nine when he got killed. Mm-hmm. I understood that he worked in silver mines and then he also worked in silver mines and he went to Telluride, Colorado. Mm-hmm.
3: But of all places to end up was the Hannah, Wyoming yes. house. Yes. <laughs> right.
4: Well, there were, uh, there were a large number of Finnish people in Hannah when the first two explosions occurred. In fact, the, probably 70% of the people that were killed in the explosions in 1903 were, were finished.
3: There was quite a conglomerate of different nationalities. Well,
4: they, they said that Rock Springs was the melting pot of the of the world. Hanna was pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. So
3: now, these were all run by the U- Union Pacific This was Hill. all
4: all run by the Union Pacific mm-hmm. Coal Company. And then, of course, the uh, primary user of the field, of the University of the Great World, and when they went to diesel uh, locomotives, well, they started about 1952, going to the diesel, diesel locomotives, oh. and uh, eventually they they closed the, the mines down there, well, it was February the, February the 28th, uh, 1954. Now, you worked in the mine, right? I worked there for a little better than 19. Uh-huh.
3: What type of mining were they doing at that time?
4: Well, it was uh underground mining. Everything underground. was underground mining until uh Swenson started the uh, uh strip mining mm-hmm. and his 'cause remember the coal company was uh it was called a Nugget Nugget Coal Company. It was a little uh just a small operation and it was approximately two, two and a half miles east of Hannah. Oh.
3: Mm-hmm. But now on this underground uh deal, how what was the process?
4: Well, in the early days, now of course I I, I went to work in the mines in 1935, and the mines were more or less mechanized at that time. Oh, not but not. in the days that, that uh, my dad worked in the mines and when Irene's dad worked in the mines, it was it was strictly a pick and shovel operation. Miners used the pick to undercut the coal and and they drill holes by hand and didn't have electric drills in those days. Oh, drill coal or drill holes by hand and then use blasting the powder to blast it down. And then it was all, all loaded by hand.
3: Well now, did they have the dynamites that they used in those days? Or was it, you no. said the mining powder? Well,
4: yeah. it was, they used, uh, they used black powder for blasting powder. in those days. And, uh, and of course black powder nowadays is outlawed. But I know my mother, uh, my dad used the uh, black powder. Uh, and in those, in those days, it, it was on what we call a contract basis. You got paid so much a time. They had certain uh, certain uh, men that, that did this, uh, well, like uh, timbering and track laying and stuff like this, that they were paid on an hourly basis, and the coal that was loaded was loaded by hand. I mean, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, somebody saying that they used to get 60 cents a ton.
3: Well, at the time where you worked, uh, were they paying by the ton there or by then by the day? No,
4: no, they were paying by the uh, by the day, by the hour.
3: By the hour.
4: When I went to work in the mines, I got 68 cents an hour.
3: Oh, for God's sakes.
0: So, from Andy's dad's experience over to his own, the mines progressed from picks and shovels to powered machinery. Imagine the machinery it takes today to collect 200 tons of coal a year here in Wyoming quite the change from picks and shovels. Let's look at the change in pay over time. Andy said his dad was paid $0.60 a ton of coal in the early 1900s. Andy himself was paid $0.68 an hour when he started in the late 30s. And today the average pay for a miner in Gillette is $81,500, which is not bad. I'll be posting images of today's mining operations and one of those pictures shows this ginormous dump truck and you can see that there's a porta potty nearby and the truck is about three times the height of the porta potty. You can see part of the mining operations from the highway there in Gillette and that's where I took the pictures. But I really need to get back to Gillette during the summer so that I can tour the Eagle Butte coal mine. It's definitely on my bucket list. Well, you might have guessed by now that Gillette is today's dot on the map. Gillette is on Crow, Cheyenne, and Dakota, Lakota, Nakota land. As Holly mentioned earlier, Gillette has the largest coal mines in the U.S., which also happen to be in the top 10 largest in the whole world. Gillette is definitely worth a stop. It could even be a great place to stay if you're going to visit Devil's Tower which is only one hour away from Gillette. It has a nice little historic downtown with shops, bars, and restaurants. I'll be posting some of my favorites that I found on TripAdvisor. While you're in Gillette, check out the Rock Pile Museum. It has hands-on and historical exhibits and a full annex with a preserved blacksmith shop, an old caboose, a one-room school, and more. They also put on a lot of events and programs, so check out their website before you head out there. There's also a really, really cool private museum there in Gillette called the Frontier Auto Museum. Wyoming PBS did a great feature on them, and I'll post a link to that on the website. What makes this place really unique is that unlike traditional museums, it's very immersive. It doesn't really have any explanatory signage. The museum is organized into rooms full of artifacts. As you walk through those rooms, the items are displayed exactly as they would have originally been seen. So, for example, a collection of car-related items from the 1950s is displayed as a mechanics garage with a 1950s car up on a lift and all of the items like oil cans and tools and everything that you'd see if you walked into a 1950s mechanic shop. That same concept is applied to a barber shop and another room is like a motel and a department store and so many others. Every item in there is in absolute pristine condition and it truly feels like you're stepping back in time as you walk through. Lastly, I have to mention that Gillette has an absolutely fantastic Parks and Rec program. It is worth visiting at any time of the year. It would be a great place to spend a day in deep winter or on a hot summer day. I'm going to quickly run through some of the amenities so you get an idea of what I mean by fantastic. The Rec Center has basketball, volleyball, and racquetball courts, a complete weight room, a field house with indoor track and five tennis courts, and also a walking track and a rock climbing tower. It has swimming pools and lap pools, a zero-depth pool and lily pads for the little ones, and water slides and a lazy river area. There's a hot tub, sauna, and steam rooms, and even massage therapy on site. And then there are the classes you can take scuba, swimming, water exercise, yoga, spinning, zumba, plus personal training, weightlifting, martial arts. And of course, if you live in Gillette, there are a bunch of leagues such as tennis and volleyball, curling. And that's just a quick summary. I'll have a link to all of it on the website. Well, I hope you enjoyed digging deep into the coal industry in Wyoming, learning from Dr. Holly Krutka about coal in Wyoming today and from the oral histories of coal in Wyoming in days gone by. Next time you hear a western meadowlark, look on the ground and see if you can find their nests. If you get a chance to go to Gillette, I highly recommend. I think you'll be very pleasantly surprised. Please subscribe for more wonderful Wyoming in your feed, and check out the show notes, wyomingmy307.blogspot.com. If you have questions or suggestions, email me wyomingmy307 at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at wyomingmy307, all one word, or check me out on Facebook by the same name. Well, happy trails to you until we meet again. Bye!